you also see that narratives of laziness, they were also used and abused by workers. So knowing that management resented a lack of effort given by them, they used it as a mode of resistance. So sit-downs and go-slows are quite common on the construction side. They're kind of playing with this idea of laziness in order to challenge management. That was Miriam Treason, who on March 20th talked about the topic Dispelling the Myth of African Worker Indolence, Labor Politics in Ethiopian Chinese Encounters. The talk was moderated by Ralf Rokus. It took place four days after the shootings in Atlanta. We, as well as Miriam, are very angry and sad about the racial-motivated and misogynist hate crime. And we stand in solidarity with the families of the victims. Yeah, hello. Um, welcome to this session um, of our um, <clears throat> webinar uh, or online discussion series, China on the Left, uh, Critical Analysis and Grassroots Activism. Uh, organized by people from different left-wing organizations and initiatives and co-sponsored by Gung Chao, uh, Made in China Journal, uh, Positions Politics and the Critical China Scholars. Uh, we began uh, this series in September last year um, as an attempt to discuss social processes and struggles in China as well as China's role in global capitalism and we want to instigate more exchange of left-wing activist researchers, initiatives, collectives, both from China and elsewhere. So please check out the Gongchao website for, for podcasts of past events and also announcement of, of upcoming events. Um, at the end of today's session, I will also shortly talk about the next event, April 3, on environmental politics in China. Today, um, I will discuss with Miriam Jerisen who will speak about dispelling the myth of African worker indolence, labor politics in Ethiopian Chinese encounters. Welcome, Miriam. Thank you very much. <laughs> Last September, during the first series of these online discussions, we, we asked participants um, using a, a survey uh, what topics they would like to discuss or us to discuss in future events. And actually the Belton Road initiatives and China's involvement in other continents um, the political and social conflicts linked to that involvement were at the top of the list of topics that people wish to, uh, to hear more about. So today we, we start with a presentation discussing uh, um, on China's involvements in Ethiopia. Um, and on May 15, uh, we will follow up with a presentation discussing on Chinese capital investments and labor struggles in Indonesia. Um, hopefully, you know, in the future, we will also discuss um, China's involvement in other regions. Now, recently in Ethiopia, <clears throat> Ethiopia has seen another civil war in the northern part of, of Tigray, of the country in Tigray. Um, and we might also, in the later part of the discussion today, might, might come to that, that uh, topic. But, um, and of course, we know there are a lot of important issues involved um, in the face of these events of war and displacement. Um, and then we ask ourselves whether it's appropriate actually to talk about Chinese investments and Chinese-Ethiopian labor relations. But we all agreed that we should go ahead uh, with this discussion, keeping in mind that we need to pay attention to these political events of war, the violence 
uh, human suffering and resistance in Ethiopia. So maybe, you know, let's, let's talk about that later. Let me first mention a few details on Ethiopia and Chinese involvement. Um, some of you might know Ethiopia is the second most populous country in Africa following Nigeria has a population of, of well over 100 million people. And due to its large and young population, Ethiopia has been seen by Chinese investors and also others as a potential hub for labor intensive industries uh, such as manufacturing. Since the late 2000s, Chinese companies have established various industries and are involved in, for instance, tannery textile manufacturing and the production of construction materials such as cement, glass, plywood, and others. Um, Chinese involvement does go back much further uh, to the 1970s, um, to the socialist times in, in China. Um, and the engagement increased then in the late 1990s um, and 2000s following CCP leader Zhang Zemin's going out policy. And the first um, uh, sector Chinese companies got involved in was infrastructure construction, especially road building. And that's also what, what Miriam, today's speaker, will talk about. Uh, Miriam is an anthropologist working on migration in China and beyond. And um, her latest book, um, Tales of Hope, Tastes of Bitterness, Chinese Road Builders in Ethiopia, published in 2019, explores the social life of work on Chinese road construction sites in Ethiopia. And the book I just read is, is very interesting, uh, very interesting research, um, also linking um, the development in Ethiopia to uh, previous developments in China, uh, which I find very interesting. So the, the book uh, asks why the Chinese managers and skilled workers uh, go to Ethiopia to work on construction sites in the first place, what social divisions exist between different categories of Chinese managers and employees and between Chinese and Ethiopian workers. Um, it, um, it asked how did high level Chinese managers police lower status workers' personal lives? Why did Chinese manager and foreman understand the Ethiopian workers' uh, lack of response to, for instance, monetary incentives and their unwillingness to work hard as a kind of backwardness or laziness? which is also part of the title for today. Um, and then, you know, very interesting, of course, what uh, forms of uh, or strategies of defiance and subversion did Ethiopian workers develop against Chinese managerial practices? Um, so these are some of the issues analyzed in the book, and uh, we, I hope we can also discuss some of those uh, today. That's uh, all from me for now. So, Miriam, the next 10 minutes are yours. Thank you very much, Rolf, for the introduction. Um, I would like to start with a few words in solidarity, um, because I'm really disturbed by the killings earlier this week. And, of course, all people discriminate, um, but it is those in power who act on it in sometimes the more, most horrible ways. So... These thoughts um, with everyone. So the theme of the discussion is inspired by personal observations and an article written by Tang Xiaoyang and Janet Eam called Time Perception and Industrialization, which you will find at the readings. 
I spend a lot of time on Chinese construction sites in Ethiopia observing labor management relations. And one thing that struck me was Chinese managers often complained about their workers being lazy, slow, inefficient, unproductive. But these narratives did not necessarily correspond with what I saw on the construction site. And so I didn't want to take these narratives at face value. And I was reminded of these narratives again by reading the article published in 2019 by Tang and Eon, in which the, argue, the, the authors argue that work attitudes and perceptions of time change, change um, as society transitions from a pre-capitalist to a capitalist mode or model. So alongside industrialization, they Put, put simply said, uh, workers uh, will work harder and are more aware of time. So you can call this approach perhaps a civilizational approach. And I think a, an important contribution they make is that they show the parallels between factories in China, especially in the 1990s and 2000s, and Chinese-run factories in Ethiopia where also in China, Chinese management complained about their workers, often rural urban migrants, um, that they were lazy, slow, unproductive, inefficient, so exactly the same discourse. So these parallels, I think, are very important. But I felt reading this article, something was missing because the focus remains firmly on the worker and his behavior or their behavior. But what about the managers? And what about the narratives? What, what do these narratives do? And so one element I felt was missing is class and to a certain extent race as well, because race often reinforces class dynamics, especially when class and race um, lines coincide. So in order to fully understand these dynamics, we should look at the manager as well and as well as the socioeconomic context and the geopolitical context in which these narratives are situated. And this is what Michael Borowoy, which is also in the readings, uh, does very well in my, in my opinion. So he places what he calls the myth of worker indolence in a broader historical context. In his case, in Zambia, Zambia transitioning from a colonial to a post-colonial state. And of course, I, I put this paper in the readings as well to emphasize that this is not a Chinese phenomenon, these discourses. They're characteristic of capitalist labor management relations. In fact, actually, they also exist beyond the workplace, right? But in situations that are marked by steep power asymmetries. So in Zambia, it was the British and the American uh, management of the mines who deployed exactly the same discourse. But how can we define laziness? How can we approach this discourse of laziness? I think historian Frederick Cooper, who studied labor in the context of colonial plantations in East Africa, really um, is spot on with saying that laziness is not a habit. It is part of a structure. So workers' attitudes should be understood as a response to management and a broader social, social political context and vice versa. 
So bearing this in mind, let me go back to the Chinese-run construction sites in Ethiopia. So first of all, what do these constructions look, construction sites look like? So especially in infrastructure construction, where it's mostly state-owned companies that are the main contractors, all Chinese management down to foremen is Chinese or expatriate. But of course, this group of Chinese managers is extremely diverse. But I think we can kind of broadly speaking, and I know very much generalizing, um, group them in two main groups. One are certified engineers who were often recruited on campus and left for Ethiopia or other African countries right after graduation. So the first work experience they gain is abroad in, in, in Africa or now in other, other countries along the BRI. Then there's another group of very experienced builders who used to work on uh, construction sites in China and they move abroad um, to earn a higher salary and to have more job security, especially in the face of increased casualization of the domestic uh, construction industry. But you see, especially with the second group, the kind of role reversal takes place where, where workers who used to do the manual labor in China now have become managers and supervisors of African labor. So Ethiopians, they take positions of rank and file laborers, but also skilled workers such as machine operators, uh, some surveyors, um, masons, carpenters, and some of the office staff um, that require um, fluency in, in a native language. But I think central to this corporate hierarchy is the racial color bar, um, which is quite obvious in, in all respects. So it separates wage levels, um, but also social benefits in terms of healthcare, um, to down to kind of spatial arrangement, like who sits in front of the car, who sits in back. Um, and in part, I think you could argue that this discourse of lazy notes was instrumental in maintaining this color bar because it makes the distinction between a managers and a managed and the hardworking and the less hardworking, perhaps. But my point is that this course is of worker indolence. And I think this is something that uh, Tang and Ian forget, is have a function. Like Michael Borowoy says, they justify labor disciplines and disciplining methods. But they also, more importantly, I think, shift responsibility onto the worker Whereas you could argue that productivity is ultimately the responsibility of management, right? So the worker is a very easy scapegoat in this respect. But then on the other hand, you also see that narratives of laziness, they were also used and abused by workers. So knowing that management resented a lack of effort given by them, they use it as a mode of resistance. So sit downs and go slows are quite common on the construction side as forms, as subtle forms of, of resistance. And so they're kind of playing with this idea of laziness uh, in order to challenge management. But I think for one thing, these narratives are extremely powerful and also they provide a window onto class dynamics on 
construction sites and other workplaces. But I hope to further unpack these narratives in the discussion and maybe give some examples as well. Thank you. Well, thank you very much um, for, for this for this introduction, a short presentation. Um, there, there are no questions um, um, yet in the Q&A, so please, everyone, um, just post your questions there. I will start um, with with some of, of our questions. Um, um, let's let's let, uh, put this a little bit into a historical uh, frame of, of Chinese involvement in um, in Ethiopia. Um, the the it started well before the sort of the, the capitalist phase, uh, which which I would say started in the 1990s. Um, there was a, already a link in the socialist times. Can you shortly describe um, the connection between these two countries? Yeah, so the two countries established diplomatic relations quite late, actually, because following the Second World War, um, the U.S. was a very strong ally of Ethiopia and also Ethiopian send troops um, to, to participate in the Korean War alongside the U.S. troops. And so it took a while until um, Ethiopia recognized uh, the PRC as opposed to Taiwan. Um, so you have these Cold War dynamics um, playing a very important role in how alliances are, are built. But it was only in 1970 that they established relationship, and it was also when Ethiopia recognized uh, the PRC. And at that time, Ethiopia was still an empire with an emperor, which is actually quite ironic because it was building a relationship with a socialist country. But in 1974, um, it was the Ethiopian revolution that completely turned over the political system in, in Ethiopia. And um, a, a socialist-inspired military regime called the Dirk uh, took over. But then again, that was socialist-inspired, but they found uh, Russia as an, as, or the Soviet Union at that time as a major ally. And so with the, the Sino-Soviet split, um, actually China kind of disappeared again um, in the background um, because at the time Soviet Union had more power, money, and um, potentially get more military support for a military, what was effectively a military regime in Ethiopia. Yeah, so so what did, you know, um, in your book, you, you also discussed that, you know, what changed then in, there were some, you described there were some already some road construction projects um, going on in, in, in this early, early, um, in, the, in the 70s and later. And then, um, but then there was a change in the, in the 1990s and also later, like with Jiang Zemin's going out policy. So, and then later with the Belt and Road Initiative. So can, can you describe like how these two programs, like Chinese programs play a role in, in, in you know, how, how do they play out in, in, in projects, in, for instance, in, in Ethiopia? Yeah, so the, the first major project was um, a road project um, of a nearly 300 kilometers long road in the northern part of Ethiopia. And this project um, was commenced after the Ethiopian revolution, although it, it had been, the deal had been made earlier. But ironically, despite China being in the background, um, throughout the whole Dirk period, it was the third um, 
um, kind of country in 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 terms of financial assistance in this in 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 the form of aid. Uh, so actually, China was very prominent, but um, in 1995, um, then Melissa um, he visited Beijing, and since that time, relations became quite tight, especially party to party relations, um, which have been very important in in that relationship until um, a, a couple of years ago. Um, and then um, when that happened in the late 1990s, um, more companies came on board, um, especially as, as Ethiopia was uh, starting the Ethiopian Road Sector Development Program, where CRBC and China Wambao were the main contractors who t took up several projects. And that's when when it really Chinese involvements kicked off. But it started really with road construction. You can say also in the late 1990s was the Addis Ababa Ring Road project, which was extremely visible because it was in the capital city. And a lot of Ethiopians remember that as being the first Chinese projects, although, um, of course, the first project was much earlier. But that was really in a, in a remote, rural, mountainous region, whereas in the late 90s, when they started the Ring Road project, the Chinese were just very came very close to 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 the center of commerce power, etc. Yeah. Yeah, you know, let's let's maybe speak about like other Chinese um, investments, like in manufacturing. Uh, later, you you already mentioned this this text by Tang and um, who that that relates to one factory in Addis Ababa. Um, but let's stay with construction. So, <clears throat> um, what kind of companies? Um, are like uh, invested in like Chinese companies uh, invested in Ethiopia are more like are they state owned privately um, owned um, and why 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 uh, would private companies for instance also have an interest in going to Ethiopia? Yeah, I think I think it's important to make a distinction between contracting and investing. Because actually, the first projects taken up by Chinese contract, uh, contractors were funded by the World Bank and Ethiopian government and, and European uh, funders. Uh, it was Chinese investment that only came later on in the 2000s. And, um, and then again, like if you look at the number of road projects, perhaps one or two out of 10 were invested or were were financed by by Chinese um, inve investment banks or or the Chinese government. So I think we have to keep that kind of separate. So the first, um, it was first the contractors who came and 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 put a like a foothold, got a foothold in 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 the country. But it's a wide range of companies that that were involved. Um, these first companies were state-owned enterprises, and often what you see in infrastructure construction, it's mostly state-owned enterprises because, in part, because the profit margin is very low. Um, so it doesn't really make sense for for private companies um, to 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 dive into that. <laughs> um, but also, also it, it has to do with licensing. So it's it's it's. it's the Chinese government who allows and actually stimulates these state-owned companies to to take to take up these projects, but you you see a very I find interesting dynamic in 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 that um, there's a lot of competition among state-owned enterprises in 
Ethiopia and other countries uh, where that's perhaps not necessarily the case within China, where there is more regulation uh, possible, but as soon as they go out, um, there's uh, less of that. But but nowadays you see that state-owned companies, they subcontract. So they subcontract to privately owned companies, but also provincial level state-owned companies and one-man businesses. So you have a really diverse uh, group of, of um, construction companies. So, which is very similar in other in other places in the world, right? Like the, the kind of pyramid of subcontracting. Um, let's uh, one more general question. Like the the projects, like you you um, you know you where you did your research, um, where were they based, and is, was that like sort of the main area where where these roads were constructed, or like how how is it like uh, how are these projects distributed across Ethiopia? So roads in Ethiopia are literally constructed all over the place from the remotest corners, like um, Ethiopia's border with South Sudan to Afar region, which is um, a very kind of desert-like uh, region to, to the Northern Highlands and the lowlands. So <laughs> everywhere, um, basically, um, you can find the Chinese. And that's also very characteristic, I think, of the, the, the Chinese-Ethiopian relationship is that a lot of people in the countryside, they have been in, in kind of direct contact with uh, these road builders. And so um, I think it, it makes for a very interesting dynamic also, um, when you look at labor, like labor conflicts, um, they're often observed because um, road building sites, they're open to the public and a lot of uh, spectators usually gather around these sites to, to see what is going on. Um, but also the local courts are dealing with court dis with labor disputes. And these are just um, the, the lower level courts um, that normally don't really deal with labor disputes. Um, but now all of a sudden, um, with the Chinese contractors coming to town, have to. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's a very, very interesting um, dynamic. Yeah, be before we come back to, to conflicts, uh, there are already some questions in the Q&A. I would um, first um, stay with first maybe the, the Chinese worker managers and workers perspectives and then with the Ethiopian um, uh, workers, so what is the background of of the uh, of the Chinese? You you mentioned they there were two major groups um, in in your talk. Can you can you elaborate a little bit on this? Like what made them um, or these two different groups? You know what makes them go to to Ethiopia, and do, what, what what are they like trying to find, and what do they find? All right. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think what the, both groups have in common is they often come from a rural uh, background. And in the case of the certified engineers, um, they could be the first um, sons in a family to enjoy higher education. And so um, often, often men, because um, it's mostly men working working in the, in this. Uh, sector, especially abroad. So within the Chinese construction industry, you see a lot of involvement of women, but it's less the case um, when you, you talk about overseas involvement in this sector. Um, but yeah, so they often from, from a rural background and after graduation, they can't really look at their parents to support kind of starting, starting up alive. 
um, which is is quite challenging these days for for men um, who are expected to find a good job, a good, well-paying job, stable, um, preferably, and also buy a house um, in, in order to be able to get married. Um, so there are a lot of societal expectations that they feel um, they have to kind of meet. And, and, and going overseas is a way to earn a relatively good salary because sometimes they can up earn up to three to four times the salary they would earn in a similar profession at home. But it's also a very stable job, right? Because the, the, the company invests in these people by buying flight tickets, um, providing housing, meals, etc., etc. So they won't be easily um, sent home, um, dismissed from, from the position. Uh, so, so in the face of increased casualization, as I said, in, 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 in the domestic construction industry, which is, has slowed down significantly in, in the past decade, um, it's a very attractive option just to save money, right? So it's not, not just earning money, but it's also saving money in part because they don't have any expenditures um, because everything is provided for um, so that is a very important reason that actually is similar to those, um, uh, the experienced workers, um, to go to, to Ethiopia. And of course, with the older generation, because it's not only young men, but also older uh, men, especially with the second group of experienced builders, they uh, sometimes feel the pressure that their sons um, feel of buying a house and they want to financially assist them um with kind of taking taking that step um so so i think these kind of societal pressures that are very prevalent and and urgent in in china kind of um push these men in a way overseas and usually they they plan to stay for only a few years uh just to meet their target and then go home but then they realize um that china keeps on developing and and that that prices will continue to go up and um, and that it will be harder to integrate because they they're losing the kind of connections and which many of them, because of their backgrounds, didn't have so many to start with. Um, not everyone. I'm, I don't want to generalize. But um, but yeah, so it's very hard then to catch up with development at home. And that kind of brings them in, in a kind of limbo where they feel kind of stuck between remaining or, or returning. Yeah, the, you know, the, which I what I found surprising in the book is that, you know, many of them even refer to themselves as nomingung, like peasant workers, or are described, you know, describe each other as such. Um, and as you as you just said, you know, they actually um, either first generation or second generation nomingung in, 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 the, in the very real sense. Uh, one way they use um, that you, I think you you like um, use a whole chapter speaking on uh, the concept of of eating um, uh, bitterness and speaking bitterness like a concept that um, you know that has some some like sort of tradition in the socialist times, especially among rural uh, like among peasants um, in the in the in the socialist era. Um, but then they, you know they, it's kind of interesting that these people use these concepts while they're uh, now their existence is actually more kind of like a, a middle class or at least you know would would uh, like to be middle class existence. So how how come they use these concepts? 
Yeah, I mean, it's definitely um, in terms of income, there are, they can be recognized as, as a middle class. Um, but then there's this kind of constant feeling, sense of insecurity um, that makes them feel not quite like firmly middle, middle, middle class, especially when um, in China, things keep on kind of developing and, and becoming more, more, more expensive. Um, but this discourse of bitterness, I think, has multiple layers. And one layer speaks to their experience in, um, in Ethiopia, where they often come with the idea of yeah, really doing, helping the country develop and, and doing good. Um, and then finding that kind of goodwill not reciprocated, right? Um, because Ethiopians, they... and here I'm generalizing because on the Ethiopian side, there are also a lot of uh, diverse opinions and there's also a lot of appreciation for uh, Chinese activities in, in, in the country. But if you are part of that kind of racialized um, corporate structure, then of course you see opposition um, and, and resisting ar resistance arising. And then um, it's the resistance that make yeah, some managers feel feel bitter, but then there's also another layer where I think which has to, um, which links back to their kind of marginal position in China and the kind of lack of recognition they get for for this this work because it's for a long time um, kind of Chinese work in Africa is is, is not valued so much, um, and you have like um, a lot of family members um, that migrants told me about, they're not so happy with um, their their father or their, their son being, being African. In fact, I, I met a few who didn't even tell their family members that they were in Africa. Like one, um, one young man I met, he, he said to his parents, I, I went out uh, to work, but he didn't tell him that he was in, in Africa. Let's turn to the to the Ethiopian workers now. Um, so, what is their background? Are they local people? Are they migrants from other regions? You know, migrating to the construction sites. Uh, also, what you know, they sort of what is Ethiopia has a lot of different sort of uh, ethnic groups. So, what is the what is the composition? Uh, one that's one question. The other is why do they work in construction? All right. Oh, that's that's a good question. Um, of course. Ethiopian workers also come from very different backgrounds. And usually the rank and file laborers, um, they're also uh, less educated, you would say, and often coming from rural areas. And you see a lot of internal migration within Ethiopia, where a lot of people, especially going from south to north, um, of course, now with the current political situation, this has kind of changed. Um, but uh, Sidamo, Walaita are, are big sending regions, especially for construction uh, projects where, where workers um, take up actually the more manual jobs. In terms of the more skilled jobs, uh, you see a concentration of workers um, from Addis Ababa region. Um, so often Chinese management, if they're satisfied with their staff, um, then they're, 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 they're taking along to other other projects, like construction projects. Um, but often, of course, there are all also workers coming from that respective region where the 
the project is based. Um, so yeah, it's it can be quite uh, quite diverse and. Chinese management is very sensitive also to the differences in, in, in how the workers work and how hard they work. <laughs> and often what, what, what is actually, yeah, maybe you could argue universal that uh, migrant workers, um, they have a, a different commitment, maybe you can say, to work than um, local people who have like a safety net. Um, around them to fall back on and um, but migrant workers are, are are generally in a more precarious uh, situation so that makes for slightly different dynamics especially also when you talk about labor disputes um, so for instance what you see with um, workers who file lawsuits it's mostly the local workers who have that safety net because really starting a court proceeding and, and finishing it can take a lot of time and you have to be in that place and have to have a kind of support base to be able to see that through. And a lot of migrant workers, they don't, they don't have that money. They, they rather go and um, start working on another project um, elsewhere. What, what is, what is their in like employment status? Like, do they get like labor contracts uh, for, for a certain period or for a certain project? So um, the rank and file workers, so you could say daily laborers, they don't usually get contracts, no. Um, the skilled laborers do, and increasingly. So in the beginning, it was often not either, but now, um, especially Ethiopian lawyers who work for Chinese companies uh, on a case-by-case -case basis or as uh, in-house counsels, they have had a major hand in improving um, labor practices of Chinese companies. And they introduced um, employment contracts that um, that follow the procedure and um, the regulations of, of the Ethiopian labor law. Um, but there's a division between the, the, the kind of more casualized workforce and, um, and then the skilled workers and educated workers. Uh, what about um, women, like Ethiopian women, on in in this uh, business, and maybe more in general? Because usually, I mean, from my work in construction, I know that around, especially larger projects, you have you know the sort of yeah, another economy, right? Like sort of services um, providing from everything from like food to to sex work around. So so um, maybe like are there women in the in the in construction work and and how about their role in the in this sort of surrounding services? Yes, actually, a part of the daily labor is taken up by women, and they are given usually light tasks uh, such as carrying water, uh, carrying small stones, um, but also you have women in the office um, doing administrative tasks. Um, so often those um, who work with say contract managers, there's then a Chinese contract manager with an assistant and that assistant would be um, often a woman um, in the office. Um, so they're definitely, definitely women, women involved. Okay, um, let's now turn to, you know, there are already a few questions on, on the conflict. Everyone obviously eager to hear more about these. Um, so one one general more general question because you know like there you already said there are there are labor conflicts how are they sort of you know what's the background is there a labor union involved 
or is are these all wildcats like like in, in like in China? Um, and um, and if if they are like how how are they organized? So there are basically no labor unions in the construction sector outside of IDs. Um, I would say so. Labor is not necessarily organized. Um, but then surprisingly, I find some of the actions that they initiate, uh, workers have like kind of an organized uh, outlook in a way, um, but they're res restricted to companies. So you rarely see um, workers of several companies combining, coming together um, to, to strike. So it's, it's, it's kind of solidarized. As Tinguan Li also uh, talked talks about this, um, but um, yeah, I mean, I mean, resistance is actually actually quite common. One of the main forms of resistance is um, also voting with their feet. So laborers they um, they go from one company to another um, to in order to kind of drive drive up the wages, especially when there is a labor shortage. And then companies feel they have to adjust their wage levels um, in order to retain their workers because they want to retain the good workers. And so um, in that way, by kind of going from one company to another, they're able to kind of play the system a little bit and put different Chinese companies against, up against each other. But unfortunately, with the current um, political situation, you see a decrease of labor mobility within Ethiopia, where a lot of workers from Amhara, Tigray, who used to work in the south, no no longer feel safe. And so a lot of work, but also Oromia, a lot of Oroma workers have also returned uh, to their respective regions. And in, in some regions, there are more investment activities it, then in others, like for instance, Tigray and Amhara don't have so many projects, and so, um, and so the competition is huge. With the result that um, wages have gone down as 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 a result, and I mean, often Ethiopian workers would blame Chinese management from exploiting this uh, this situation, but it's 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 become very very precarious, um, especially with the political instability over the past um, four, four or five years. Um, just just one, one, one little thing, well, maybe, but important, the wages. So um, what, what, how much do these, these workers, like the, the Ethiopian workers usually earn and how does it compare to like other, other jobs? Um, so there's a huge fluctuation, especially recently of the Ethiopian burr. But for instance, the daily laborers on the on one of the projects I looked at uh, last year, the Nile Bridge project in Bahar Dar, they earned eighty uh, burr per day, which is two dollars um, with the current rate. Um, a little bit more at the at the time, um, but uh, not very much. Um, and perhaps skilled workers would earn twice uh, that amount. Um, but um, yeah, these are quite thin wages. Well, so two, two to four US dollars a day, is, is that right? So does that does that mean the, these workers can like sort of support their families uh, or, or save money or is it actually just to survive? It's yeah. I mean, I, often it's it's is especially with this rate, and it used to be better. I have to say, 
um, it's it's really this crisis of of um, yeah the political um, situation that drives that has driven these wages down because there is a lack of worker mobility um, in some regions more than in others um, that has made actually what workers also would say no use of working. Um, yeah. So what? Okay, let's let's talk more about the conflicts. What what um, what are the main issues? Like you know the sort of why why would workers you know use uh, what you call sub subversive means? Um, and also like you you emphasize a lot in the book that a lot of these ways are not also the kind of the, the hidden forms or sort of forms of sort of everyday practices, which can actually be quite quite open. Um, so maybe can you give some examples of those because I think that that illustrates that better. So forms of resistance really um, it's a broad range uh, from kind of chatting during work, sometimes uh, drinking alcohol and then especially <laughs> when the managers see it. <laughs> so it's really as a, as a, as a way of um, subversion or kind of disobeying orders, um, but also the with draw of labor, which is a very, um, very important um, way of, of, of resistance. Um, but yeah, so it ranged from, but then also strikes, um, right? But like I said, um, restricted to the company level. Um, so there's a wide range of, of um, issues. And I think because um, recently I've been looking at court cases and one of the issues that comes up is um, because the main disciplining me measure of the Chinese management is dismissal. Um, sometimes they, yeah, <laughs> and then they go to court and he said, but this worker didn't obey my orders uh, and that's why I dismissed this person. Um, but of course, just not obeying orders <laughs> does not... Uh, according to the labor law, not, not count as, as a lawful dismissal. You have to give warnings um, three times at least, um, and often in writing, uh, preferably for the court to recognize that as, um, as a lawful uh, dismissal. So what you see when, <laughs> especially foremen, because th there's also an issue here that foremen on the ground, they used to just uh, send workers home and uh, I was talking with lawyers and they said, yeah, the Chinese, they just say go or go, go, because there's a lot of communication barriers or they say go, go, go <laughs> to, to send their workers home, but actually they're not qualified to make that decision. It's higher level management that has the authority to do so. But then of course, if they're not, not, not always on the construction site. And so when a worker goes home, because they very well understand that go means you're dismissed. Um, although lawyers, they're, they're nowadays, they say to workers, go doesn't mean you, you're dismissed. <laughs> um, but they go and they go to court and they file a lawsuit against their worker for unlawful dismissals. In a way, the kind of use of the law and the mobilization of the law is also a form of resistance. And of course, if the court recognizes these uh, these claims of the worker um, and have management pay a lot of compensation, then other workers kind of follow suit, <laughs> even up to the 
the point that they are quite opportunistic about it. And they, what one uh, Chinese manager complained to me, like workers get hired to be fired to sue as in court. <laughs> so, so there's this kind of looking at kind of um, agency from the worker side. I think uh, the courts are one um, kind of important way to assert that agency um, effectively against uh, Chinese management. Of course, as workers learn, management also learns. Um, so recently there was, for instance, a case um, that one judge told me about um, where a Chinese manager accused one worker of being lazy. Um, and so came to court, said, we fired him because he was lazy. And in this case, management had been very, very um, smart in giving warnings and making pictures while this worker was resting during work time um, and making a video. <laughs> and in, th in this case, the court um, kind of classified this as not um, doing the tasks that are in that, that he this person is contractually um, obligated to do. And, and so it was classified as a lawful dismissal. So in this case, it was Chinese management that, that won. But there's this kind of tension, I think that the kind of obedience and disobedience where it's also a difference within cult cultures, really work cultures in, in China, there's just a very steep hierarchy and there's no way of kind of talking back or even ask questions, right? So, but this is actually very normal in Ethiopian culture where it's, it's quite counterintuitive to not talk with your manager. And then of course, a, a, a language barrier makes that even, even more, more complicated. So there's, yeah, there's very different aspects to that. I think there's a cultural dimension um, as well. There, there's a question from the audience, like uh, on um, labor conflicts between like Chinese managers and Chinese employees. Um, have you come across those? Very few, um, in part because um, disputes, of, of course, they happen, um, but they often happen behind closed doors. And there are few instances have been of Chinese workers going to strike um, across Africa. But I have never witnessed uh, witnessed this. So it was, uh, I mean, some some of the privately owned subcontractors, which are which kind of grew out the, these work gangs in in China, often with employees coming from the same county, and with quite abusive practices. Um, they just had to swallow. Um, they're kind of uh, and. Abuses in, in in many ways because they also they they didn't get meat for 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 their meals, um, they didn't get work clothing, um, they were not allowed to go home for three years on end, um, and so yeah, so it, quite quite abusive work situations where they just could only only swallow. Um, I've never seen I've never seen a a, a Chinese. Um, conflict um, among different levels of management uh, related to 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 work you 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 know you, you started off with with um, discussing the the whether well, the critique or the criticism of, of indul worker indulgence used by managers uh, not just not just in Ethiopia 
uh, obviously <clears throat> against uh, workers kind of also placing the responsibility for productivity or low productivity on the workers themselves. So, you know, how can you can you maybe explain again, like how Chinese managers use that and, you know, on the construction sites, uh, in what way and how do like also kind of uh, racialized or racist arguments play play out here? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's a narrative that is quite is common and maybe in part, um, I I was often um, managers often came to me to complain about this because they it, their complaints fell on deaf ears um, with local workers. Um, but I think a lot of it is um, in this cultural dimension I I already mentioned, but also a feeling of a lack of respect that was uh, very much an issue often and i think this had again also a racial dimension where workers felt they were not fully respected and 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 this goes back for instance one one of the main kind of bones of contention was um protective um equipment uh, such as hard hats uh, reflective vests um sturdy boots so none of this was provided by the company only as one um as as workers told me on the now bridge project when the media came by they they got a, a vest had to put their name on it for the next time the media would come but he, they had to kind of collect they came collect all these um this equipment afterwards because um chinese management feared it would get stolen otherwise or people or, or workers would run away with it but but the kind of um disrespect for the worker body which was kind of felt on, on the ethiopian side really um kind of led to a lot of resent resentment so it was very kind of basic um kind of human um respect um and if that basis is not there then um you have very little to build on in in terms of empathy or 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 effective collaboration in the end um of course they had to make, make do because roads have to be built in a, in a way but there was a lot of tension i would say um you know from my experience in in, in china that in general uh, many chinese people um you know show racist attitudes towards towards black Black people in 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 general, um, and one example of of also discrimination that that can produce was um, last year in in Guangdong province. It probably happened elsewhere too, but in Guangdong, I guess, because there are a lot of people, especially in Guangzhou, um, um, from from with an African background, uh, which were accused of of bringing in the the COVID nineteen the the coronavirus and then you know being discriminated. Um, as as black people, you know, being kicked out of their homes and stuff like this. Um, so, in in general, um, do you think that you know, sort of the sort of racist discourses that that um, exist in in China uh, about black people, they they that uh, the Chinese managers and, and workers kind of um, that it changes that that they overcome it, or um, what what do you think? I think there's a main difference between educated uh, managers and, and managers who enjoyed little education. So the usually the, the certified engineers, the educated, they were very um, 
there were much less racist um, than their kind of older. I think it's also a generational issue here um, and exposure as well. Um, but often the older generation was accused by the younger generation of being very racist. And that included kind of tone of voice they spoke to, um, uh, such as a kind of shouting, um, because they felt um, probably that that laborers couldn't understand them. So one way of kind of driving their message through would be raising their voice and even more. Um, but um, this was not necessarily the case with higher level managers um, who had enjoyed um, university education, who were much uh, more tactful in, in these things and, and, and not, not overly racist. I've, I've not seen, seen that. You know, there, there's a question. I, I think I read it to you because um, it draws back on the on the borough voice um, argument. Also, what you said about race and class earlier on. Um, so I, I, I read this. I fully get the capitalist dynamic, the, the borough wide argument, but the racial dynamic seems less clear. Earlier in the third worldist moment, moment of the 1960s and 70s, Africans were China's fraternal allies and racial allies, and then anti-racist or at least rhetorical and often practical geopolitics. This all gets somehow mobilized and erased in the newer era. Can you discuss some of those dynamics um, that is perhaps as part of, a ra of racial capitalism or in some paradigm that links the capitalist transformation of labor relations to the racialization of labor? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good comment. And I actually agree with you that Burroway, he should have done more with race um, because it's a racialized capitalist system, right? And he, he doesn't go into detail here. Um, so I agree with that. I think back in the day, but also now, there there is this kind of um, schism between kind of state ideology and a kind of anti-racist um, ideology of, of um, solidarity, third world so solidarity, and kind of more popular discourses on, on the ground. Now, from that period, we don't have so much um, material um, kind of firsthand observations um, on, on these relationships on, on, on the ground. Uh, so I, I cannot say so much about that, but I, I, I assume that there was a sim similar kind of difference between a state-promoted um, narratives and, and those narratives that were um, kind of circulating on the construction site where people directly worked with um, African laborers. Okay, the, uh, one thing I found very interesting in the book was also the involvement of kind of the local you know the local population in the surrounding areas and the and the way, and I, maybe let's discuss that also. You know, sort of with a sort of uh, out of the perspective of, of, of race or the or the, the perspectives that Ethiopian people um, had on on the Chinese. Like, how would they see the Chinese, um, and um, and you know, how was the race in general? You know, the the between the sort of the not just the, the Ethiopian workers but the the population there, and how did they kind of treat the Chinese? 
Well, there there's a broad range of perspectives, I think. Um, so there's one one group who really appreciates um, and has a lot of respect, um, especially respect, I think, for um, for Chinese work culture um, that was often mentioned, um, and. But then, of course, there's also racism from from the Ethiopian side, and um, often Chinese managers would say would feel that Ethiopians would look down <laughs> upon them, um, and of course, I mean, this also increased um, during COVID because um, that brought these kind of tensions in in kind of greater relief uh, in all in all respects. And, um, but, but I feel, because partly I, I experience these, um, these dynamics as well, because often it's, has been white, um, Westerners who brought COVID to Africa. Um, but that has kind of subsided apart from the children on the street who call Corona, Corona, um, in, in Ethiopia. But, um, but yeah, there was a, there, there, there was a lot of fear, and and that kind of translated in in anti-Chinese, but more generally, I would say anti-foreign um, uh, sentiment. So, um, you know, slightly personal question. So, you as a as a white person, you you were kind of like um, the third the third other, right? And, and so, how did they play out in you know, how, how did that, you know, sort of that issue of you being a white European um, play out in, in your research and your relation to one side, the uh, Chinese managers and workers, and on the other side, the Ethiopian workers and population? I think my position as a Westerner has very much shifted as the geopolitical situation changed, um, especially because my earlier research was back in 2011-12, and more recently, with the China China U.S. trade war, with the kind of overall tensions, um, it's it's becoming I find harder to connect uh, with uh, Chinese migrants in Ethiopia, which was not at all the case back in two thousand eleven and and twelve. Um, there was much less uh, suspicion, and of course, that's also related to domestic developments within China. Um, so I think all these factors play play into that. But in terms of the kind of third other, I think there are disadvantages and advantages. And one advantage I think is that you're, in a way, you're never neutral, but um, that you kind of stand in between, and so. Of course, you often, if you talk with workers, they see it as an opportunity to vent. Uh, so you have to be really careful with that and putting that in perspective, but also with managers, right? Um, to like, for instance, these complaints about workers being lazy and um, they often turn to me and, you, and, and said, Miriam, you, you have been in China. You, you, you know how, how hardworking we are and how developed we are because workers wouldn't have, want to have, have anything of it. Um, so you're kind of in, in, in between, and I think as an ethnographer, that is quite a good position to be in. But of course, if, if I would be Chinese, it would have been easier to gain access on the Chinese side. And as same with it would have been Ethiopian, then um, I would have gained more easily access on the Ethiopian side. But then it would be harder to kind of reflect on the other side as well. Um, but this was a constant struggle um, because I felt, especially 
when in 2011-12 when I was really living in a workers camp and I was just observing the work each day on site where everybody sees you you see they see with who you talk or who you approach and and there I felt people really re required me to make a choice are you with the Chinese or are you with the Ethiopian uh, side and and so there I made a conscious choice to look at the Chinese perspective um, but keeping in mind a kind of the Ethiopian perspective as well, especially through observation. And I think I benefited greatly from, from the method observation um, because especially in this kind of political tense moment, but also um, kind of environment, um, what people do, what people say, and what people say they do are entirely different things, right? So it's very important to triangulate. And I think there, um, Tang and Iyum, who, who rely on surveys and um, interviews, kind of miss um, the kind of difference between narratives and actually what, what is happening and to kind of cross-check cross, cross -check that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you, it, it, you know, the, the research you did for, for your book, uh, you mentioned that it was kind of a stretch of uh, uh, maybe a hundred kilometers of, of construction. Um, and you, had, you know, you had to, you had no car, and you had to say, kind of find a way, um, um, find your way to the to the dormitories and the construction site, um, which which involved a lot of uh, traveling, and all, you know, and then um, also, you know, you mentioned that most of the workers, the Chinese and the Ethiopian workers, are, are men, and also all, virtually all car drivers were also men. So how how was that like in, in, in sort of a, from a gender perspective? How First, you know, from a spatial perspective, let's say, and from a gender perspective. Yeah. So as, as an anthropologist, you want to be there where things are happening. <laughs> and so I was looking at where the activities, construction activities were happening, like, for instance, where the asphalt was being laid or where they were working on the grading of the base cores. Um, and um, which the, was the work that was being supervised. And then usually if it was the asphalt, I took the dump truck because the dump trucks, they, they ferry um, asphalt to site. And then uh, that way I could attend that activity. Um, if not, then maybe I could lift take <laughs> with the consultant engineers or with the Chinese manager to, to, to another site. But of course, I mean, the simultaneous Ninety of the events, um, I missed a lot as well, and sometimes. Um, but that that was in in and by itself quite interesting because some if something happened, uh, that information kind of traveled. But as it traveled, it kind of got transformed in, into a different narratives and then different narratives, and to tend trace it back because I then next day I would travel to that point where that event happened and talked with the people on site and they had a very different story um but yeah actually i i thought it great fun to to um to move between these sites and um yeah you you, you it also gives you an opportunity because it's such a, go, a big project that there were many subcontractors and different companies and then you of course you see the lot of different types of chinese companies and how they treat um how they treat their Chinese staff, but also Ethiopian staff. There was one company I loved uh, kind of observing the work where it was a one man's business that was run by a Chinese man. Um, but the entire, his entire workforce was Ethiopian and he had a very, very effective management style where he also, I think his personality is very social 
and and really um, wanted that kind of technology transfer to happen. Whereas a, a lot of Chinese managers were not not so interested in in that. Rather, they wanted to finish that road. Uh, um, but this this person had set up a kind of um, the Tudi system where you had the the master and the disciple. And, um, and it worked very well because he was training carpenters, he was training uh, masons, and, and these Ethiopian workers, they felt they really learned a skill and learned a very good because, I mean, this Chinese man was very capable in, in, in everything. Um, and, and they were very motivated, um, where often with other companies that was not necessarily the case, there was really antagonism that, that dominated. Um, but yeah, there were, there were, I think good examples, and and this manager never complained that the workers were lazy, uh, right? So so there, yeah. I think that management style just worked much better in uh, in that context. And do do you want to comment on the on the gender aspect? Sort of your like you know so like I worked in construction a lot, and it was all male as well, and it was uh, like like. Uh, women working there always uh, had a hard time uh, often and so what what was your experience as, as being there for so long yeah so I, in the beginning i was a little bit fearing this kind of masculine culture and how i would kind of fare as a woman but then on the other hand it was compensated i found very much by the communal life within uh, within the compounds and um, I felt actually really protected because the man kind of looked after me that nothing would happen to her. <laughs> so if I would go, then they, they would know. And um, and also I kind of involved him in, 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 where, in my whereabouts. Um, so in the end, I did face um, sexual harassment, but it was all, only on the road. Um, so not, not within the camps or, or on the construction sites. So where I thought something that that would be a really an issue, it actually wasn't so much. Okay, what well, like let's maybe turn back to the to the the essay you mentioned by by Tang and um, uh, which which I found actually very interesting, especially because you you kind of underlined some of the of the limits. Um, I think one aspect that's uh, that I found important is that it it describes how it's not really a cultural. Dimension that that um, sort of um, determines whether someone is is working hard or whatever or not, um, but it's it's it depends on on the on on, on the, actually um, the invention and the usage of time um, um, and how that developed within capitalism and and um, and the industrial system and how people are kind of um, learning right um, also in a in a negative sense I would say. <laughs> Um, to kind of respect um, time, industrial time. Um, and then there's a temporality because of obviously in China, uh, this has been developed, you know, this kind of new understanding or industrialized understanding of time and work discipline has been developed, um, you know, in, let's say in waves, you know, in, during the socialist period uh, as well as after, while, and while in Ethiopia, it's 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 been developed um, at a different time. You also I uh, think refer to that in your book as slightly. And so could you could you explain um, uh, or or maybe um, express your opinion on this? You know the cultural explanations which actually drive me crazy often when I when I 
hear them when it when it's about let's say labor struggles in China or, or similar issues. Yeah, no, I fully agree with them in terms of their dismissal of the cultural list argument, um, where the kind of Chinese are classified as hardworking and Africans naturally are less hardworking. So I agree with that point. But they, they, um, I think they dismiss also another cultural dimension, I think, in how people approach work. And this is something I I, I discovered uh, while observing the work, especially the relationship between contractors and local subcontractors, so Ethiopian subcontractors, who worked in a very different way. So if if there was a subcontractor who um, did the grading of a base course at a certain stretch on on the road, they started early and continued, and then around maybe 11, 11.30, Chinese supervisors were like we have to be on time for lunch um so we have to go back to the camp and usually they had um, an afternoon nap so they had lunch at 12 straight and then afternoon nap until two and then they took the car back to site and it would arrive because it was a long um road they could only arrive at 2 30 um or three and all that time <laughs> the ethiopian subcontractor continued working and maybe they took a short break to have lunch um, whenever a task was finished. And, um, but they continued working. And so then there was a lot of tension because Chinese management had not been able to supervise that part of the work because they were at lunch and, and having their afternoon nap. Um, and so sometimes the quality, they had issues with the quality and, and requested the Ethiopian subcontractor to redo a, a part of what they had done. And so this led to a lot of tension, but here you can also ask the question, like what does it mean to work hard um, or be lazy, right? So you could classify the Ethiopian subcontractor as working harder because they just have a short break for lunch and then continue whenever that break is. Like it could be one o'clock or two o'clock. It doesn't necessarily have to be 12 o'clock, right? Um, that's one thing. Um, another thing I think that is related to culture, and this is something I'm um, I'm kind of exploring with a colleague of mine, Udi, um, is is um, Chinese management often required workers to do tasks that Ethiopian workers found a little bit awkward um, and a little bit lowly. Like for instance, they were asked to clean the compound or even clean the toilets. And for Chinese management, it was just part of the work. It's, um, it's, it's part of kind of life in the compound and, and, and you just have to put up with it and do it. And there's nothing shameful about it. Um, but in Ethiopian culture, some, some tasks, especially cleaning tasks, um, which are naturally seen as female tasks, but also quite low, lowly paid uh, labor, um, they, they have a hard time, um, accepting, um, and, and for them, Chinese management requesting to them to do these tasks actually felt disrespectful. Um, asking a driver, they had no problem with cleaning the car because that, that they saw as kind of part of a driver's job. Um, but to ask them to clean the office of, of the manager, um, they sometimes had issues with, and that resulted in resistance. 
And sometimes it even led to either a resignation on the part of the Ethiopian worker or a dismissal from the Chinese side. So there was this, these issues where um, kind of cultural notions of kind of attached to different types of work caused a lot of strife and resistance. And I think in, in, in Tang and Iyum's article, they kind of brush over this uh, cultural dimension that I think is very, very important to take into consideration. I think we, we came across that point in, in when we discussed this earlier, preparing this talk, you know, that a lot when whenever you discuss um, certain issues um, or, you know, conflicts, uh, let, you know, now this example with cleaning the toilet, it reminds me a lot, um, you know, because uh, of, of, of instances on construction site in Europe where I worked, where we had kind of the same issues with uh, only with the difference that the, the composition of the workers, I mean, it was male, but at the same time, you know, there might might have been people from 15 different countries. Um, so so more like, let's say, more cultural um, cultural aspects also involved in some way. But but uh, at the same time, similarities in terms of like, uh, like what can a boss tell you to do and which boss like uh, and stuff like that. Um, there's one question that I, uh, from 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 the audience that I find very, very interesting. Um, I'm, I'm reading, in your opinion, how much do the Chinese management bring their way of management to Ethiopia? How much does the Chinese style of labor relation shape the labor relation, legal or informal, in Ethiopia? I think it's definitely a process of adjustment. In the beginning, they, yeah, they would just take um, their attitude that they learned in China to Ethiopia. And there you see this very steep hierarchy, um, no questions asked, no, especially, I mean, if you talk about the kind of, if you bring in this racial component, even more so, right? Um, like I said, if if class lines and, and racial lines coincide, then you get um, an even stronger dynamic in this way. Um, but you see them actually adjusting uh, to, to ways. Um, like for instance, uh, recently, um, I was talking with a, a lawyer, an Ethiopian lawyer, and he reported back to a lower level manager on um, the court cases that he was dealing with. But he got a little bit frustrated because this lower level manager had no decision making power and always had to kind of ask his manager and that manager has to ask the project manager. And so this Ethiopian lawyer was like I, kind of hitting a wall and he decided just to go straight to the project manager. And the project manager was a little bit uncomfortable with it, but in the end kind of accepted it and, and, and put up with it. And so you see these ways, they're kind of adjusting um, in part because of the kind of assertive attitude from, from some, some Ethiopian employees, whether they are um, educated, skilled or, or unskilled laborers. Um, but they, they do adjust. Um, which is a very interesting dynamic. Of course, Ethiopians on their side adjust to Chinese um, management styles as, as, as well. So it's, it comes from both directions. Um, so kind of connected um, a question, how do Chinese manager, managers and workers communicate with locals? Do they have their interpreters or some of them, or do some of them speak their local languages? So this is changing as well. In the beginning period, there were hardly any 
interpreters and there were maybe there were interpreters but they could speak english not necessarily chinese or ethiopian uh interpreters and then of course there could be chinese interpreters but they interpreted between chinese and english so there was always this double interpretation but the more kind of projects were carried out in ethiopia you see now a, a group of workers who are self, in, in a way self-made interpreters. Um, so I interviewed um, a few of them and one was used to be a mechanic and he was working in Dredoa on, on the railway project there. And he had one time he had a situation where his manager asked him to bring a screwdriver, but he, had, he didn't know what his manager wanted. And so, and so he, he came back with a piece of wood Whereupon, whereupon his manager hit him on the head with the with the wood. It's like I'm not asking for wood. I'm asking for a screwdriver, and it was very painful. He said, um, but he didn't want to kind of take this issue further because he wanted to keep his job. But at that moment, he decided to start learning Chinese. And so he started kind of writing down everything his manager said and, and slowly kind of started learning Chinese without even attending a, a, a program. And now he's fluent in Chinese and has become now his main job is interpreter. <laughs> uh, so you have that, but you also have um, you have more and more um, a few programs, um, Confucius Institute programs in Ethiopia. Um, where students who finish these pro um, programs often end up working as interpreters or um, human resource officers, often under a Chinese counterpart, uh, working for Chinese companies. And um, yeah, they're a different, different group of interpreters. Um, so there's more and more uh, kind of mediation. But still, like on the construction side, just because these projects are huge and, and the interpreter cannot reach everyone. So over the time, um, a pidgin language has um, evolved and it's something I, I write about as well in a separate article, um, which I found really fascinating. And um, in that article, I kind of look at what this pidgin says about the power relations between uh, manager and worker because this pidgin is quite interesting in, in that it is composed of three different languages instead of two, what, what used to be the case, like for instance, in the colonial period in, in Africa and different African countries. Um, so it draws from Amharic as a kind of um, kind of vehicular language in within Ethiopia, because often Ethiopian workers come from different regions. And so when they're kind of together, they use Amharic to communicate. Um, and Chinese and English um, in almost kind of one third, one third, one third fashion. Um, and it's, it's, it's very interesting to see, uh, to kind of explore that language and how, how it is used, because it's also used as a tool of resistance. Um, like for instance, some of the, some of the first words that Ethiopian workers learned from their Chinese managers were the curse words like what's up or malakapi. <laughs> um, so yeah, so there, there were these interesting dynamics uh, going on also in, 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 in the language they use for communication because eventually you have to kind of communicate in order to collaborate and be able to build a road, right? Um, so they kind of had to make do. <laughs> yeah. 
Okay. Um, yeah, we we you know, finished soon. One um, one question uh, from me um, because now we have we have the war situation again um, in or a war situation again in in, in Ethiopia. Um, do you know? You said you were you 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 spent time the uh, last year. Um, how did you see that development coming um, then already? And uh, how, uh, you know, sort of what influence does it have on, on these construction projects and also on, on Chinese uh, uh, people in, in Ethiopia? Mm. Yeah, for, for a long time, I was actually based in Tigray region where the conflict is happening now. And definitely um, the war didn't come out of nothing, although people are surprised how hate speech kind of can turn into a full-fledged war. Um, so I think Tigrians did not expect that to happen, but there were immense tensions um, that kind of build up every every month and kind of, and um, yeah, so, but Chinese companies have been aware of the political situation and the tensions um, and a kind of ethnic politics. Um, of course, for them, it also came as a surprise, um, even though they were aware, but you don't expect a war um, to happen. And But it did happen, and so they had to evacuate. And um, and the Chinese emb embassy combined with the state-owned enterprises, especially, they have been very effective in evacuating their personnel from various parts of, of Tigray region. Um, so now most people are, um, yeah, have left and unfortunately they had to leave the work there. I mean, some, like for instance, in, in Megala industrial zone, uh, some of the companies, the, the, the factories have been asked to continue operations, but then very soon realizing that that is not realistic because they don't have workers. Um, and so they've been kind of given... Um, an arrangement that they can move their factories to another Debra Berhan uh, industrial park or another park close to Addis Ababa and move their operations. But of course, it's very costly. Um, so yeah, they, they've been very much struggling. But in, in the areas, um, like for instance, there was a project uh, near Megala and Garab Giba, um, that area is just not safe. So they have not been able to, to return to that area and actually most um, also in in the western part of Tigray which has now been annexed by um, Amhara region um, they've also been not been able to return there so yeah so but a lot of workers have been um, yeah they've been brought um, temporarily to other um, other camps and, and areas and as far as companies can accommodate them in in um, and either having them return to China or or putting them to work on other projects that that is happening. Um, but yeah, it's a very unfortunate situation. But Tigray was not one, especially in the last two years, um, not one of the main regions of Chinese kind of activities and enterprises. Um, most of them are based in Oromia region. Um, so it was not one of the regions that had most uh, Chinese nationals. You, and effects on the on the Ethiopian workers, like you mentioned already, that um, you know, with this sort of uh, feeling of insecurity, like um, 
Ethiopian people from certain regions were would rather not migrate or, or move back to their uh, regions of origin. Are there any other other effects? Yeah, so it's really this, I would say, decrease in labor mobility. So workers, they go back to their home regions, right? Because that's where they feel um, most safe. Um, of course, COVID has also had an effect on this. Um, although most projects have continued to operate, especially the construction projects, um, with actually more tensions because... Chinese management, especially in the early uh, 2020, was really was very afraid um, of what would happen if COVID would come to Ethiopia or Africa more generally. And so they kind of clamped down because they saw what was happening in China. And so um, they started, many of them started self-isolating um, as far as possible um, uh, right from the start, end of, uh, end of gen January or early February. 2020 and and have been really very careful but then there were tensions because um they they wanted their workers to stay on site and not leave um the the premises and this was difficult because um, workers were made to compromise and some of the workers they have family uh, living nearby and so and their costs will also be higher because they have to provide for their own food rather than um, eat together with their families, um, which is an additional cost on, on a very low salary. Um, so there were a lot of, I, I, yeah, you would could say that this tensions that already existed were um, actually even stronger during, during COVID. And so there were a lot of disputes regard to the kind of restricted mobility for Ethiopian laborers um, as well. Although some of them, like for instance, at the Nile Bridge project that I was um, following were resolved uh, quite effectively by mediation from the Bureau for uh, Social and Labor Affairs. So a local bureau that is there to uh, mediate in between employer and employee, provided that both parties are willing to compromise in and I, I guess in in the kind of COVID periods there was willingness on the side of Chinese management to to give in to some some of the requirements requested um, demands of the workers okay thank you very much uh, an hour and a half um, uh, thank you for sharing um, your insights and perspective I, I it was very interesting I can recommend everyone like to to read your book. Um, and the also the the the, the uh, like reviews of the book, and the other text that we mentioned, the Borowoi text, the Tang Eum text, they are all linked uh, on the announcement website um, for this event on Gong Chao. So everyone, there were some questions about the text, so please go there um, uh, to check them out. <clears throat> um, yeah, thank you. Um, before uh, we finish, oh, well, you have a last word if you if you want to to have a last word. Um, ah, you know maybe um, uh, my book is quite expensive, so if you can't afford it, please do get in touch with me. Uh, I will write down my um, my email address in the comments. Okay, while you do this. Um, let me let me say a few, uh, two more things. Uh, one, um, 
um, in January we had a we had a talk uh, by um, by Darren Beiler on the situation in Xinjiang, um, and later I interviewed Darren um, on these um, on this on the same subject, and the article the interview was was just published, and I will also um, post that um, in the in the chat. Um, so please uh, check it out. And the second thing is, um, I also linked that um, with the next event uh, will happen um, in, on April uh, 3, Saturday, exactly in two weeks time. The title uh, of that event is China's Engine of Environmental Collapse, which is also a title of a two, 2020 book by uh, speaker Richard Smith. Um, and from the announcement, um, this from the announcement, China is at the heart of a global ecological crisis that is posing an existential threat to humanity. The breakneck economic development in China has wreaked havoc for the environment, extracting and consuming an unimaginable amount of resources and severely polluting land, air and water. And while Europe and the United States have been historically responsible for the emission of greenhouse gases, China has overtaken the rest of the world to become the leading emitter as global production moved into China in recent decades. How should we understand China's environmental crisis and its route from a left perspective? Is there anything specific to China's political economic institutions that create and perpetuate the ecological uh, ecological catastrophe and as the Chinese government has focused on promoting renewable energy and spoken of ecological civilization does China hold any solution to tackling global ecological crisis so Richard Smith uh, will discuss these questions Kevin Lin will moderate the Q&A all this is on April 3 um, I hope to see you all then so thank you very much for participating thank you again Miriam, and wherever you are, stay well, stay safe. Goodbye. Zaijian. <laughs>